I don't know how your week was, but I want you to imagine for a second that it was a lot worse than I'm pretty sure it was. I want you to imagine that on Monday you found out that your failing kidney, you finally were able to get a kidney transplant, and so you went into the hospital and you got a kidney transplant. But unfortunately, on the way home from the kidney transplant, you got in an accident. Not so good. Um, And you lost your arms, both of your arms were amputated. But there's good news because the next day you find out that the lady down the street, well, it's not good news for her, she passed away, but she was an organ donor and so she donated your, her arms to you and you can have arm surgery on Tuesday and you can have two new arms. You might be thinking I'm stretching a little bit, but I want you to meet Bernard for a second. This is one of our veterans who served, um, and in the line of duty, he ended up uh, suffering a severe injury when an explosion went off. He had to have all four of his limbs amputated. And he said just having those prosthetic arms, they were just kind of cumbersome. And so he ended up finding out from this doctor that they could actually do arm transplants for him. And here is a picture after his surgery, uh, actually a video of him with his arm transplants. You see he has a girl's arms there that has enabled him to be able to use his arms again. Here's the doctor. Uh, Let's see here. Here's the doctor. Dr. Andrew Lee did the surgery, was able to give him a new lease on life by transplanting his arms. But you know, I, I didn't, you didn't know this, but you find out on Wednesday that you're having severe heart issues. And so the doctor says, you know, I don't know what else we're going to be able to do. It's, you're going to have to have a heart transplant. And so thankfully to you, but not to him, Bruno died in prison and um, he was an organ donor as well. And they have people actually that are just designed, uh, they, they work specifically with harvesting organs and transporting them. And so they bring you the, they bring the heart to the hospital and they put Bruno's heart in your heart. And now you have a new heart. The week goes on and you get a new pancreas, you get a new liver, you get, did you know there was a lady in France who got a face transplant after her dog bit her face? There was actually a bit of controversy about it in France because She started smoking not long after that, or resumed smoking, and people said, you can't smoke with somebody else's face, but whose face was it? It was her face now. Here's the question. After all of those changes to your body, who would you be? Would you still be you, or would you be Bruno? Would you be that girl who gave you her arms? Who would you be? What is your identity? And how do you find it? What is it? Where can, is it located? Well, Jesus said something fascinating in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. He said, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the, what does it say? Those who cannot kill the soul. Don't, don't be afraid just of, of a physical death where your, your body comes to the end of its heart beating, where you're no longer breathing. We could have added a lung transplant in there. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You know, the Bible gives us a picture of two different deaths. 
There's a death that takes place at the end of our life that usually takes place through old age or maybe through some accident or some tragedy or through some crime or through some disease. But then there's a picture in the Bible that that that's not actually the end. And and we can understand this a little bit better because, I mean, have you gotten a, a new cell phone before? And how many of you update or back up your cell phones to either a computer or to the cloud or something like that? You back up your cell phone? A few of you do. And then when you get a, a new phone, you reinstall that backup or you, you update it based upon that backup. And now you have a new phone. It's not the same phone anymore. It's a new body. But you install that backup onto your computer or your phone and what happens? You turn it on and I, you know, I remember getting a new phone before and I, as I picked it up and got it out of the box and finally installed the, the, the backup to the phone and I remember looking at it and thinking, this is a new phone? But it looks the same. Everything's exactly the same in there. Well, it does operate a little bit faster, but all the same information there, it's all the same. When our bodies go into the grave, they disintegrate to dust. But Colossians chapter 3, verse 3 says, you have died and your life is hid with Christ in God. There's something about your soul, your psyche, that God preserves after the first death. It's a fascinating uh, topic that we're not going to go into detail today. Uh, You could look at stories about Jesus who, when he's uh, headed to to heal that that, um, ruler's daughter, and they come and they say, oh, don't bother the teacher, she's dead. He gets to the house and he says, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. And then he wakes her up. There's this power in God to, to reinstall the operating system onto the hardware that enables that person to come back into existence. And immediately their life carries on from where they had stopped. So what, though, makes the identity of a person? What, what makes your identity? Who are you? Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 says it this way. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. You know, the verse before us, it says that God said, let us make man in our own image. It's, it's this conversation with a triune God, this, this thing that's mind-blowing to us, this Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who have existed in this perfect friendship throughout eternity. They say, let's make man, and when we do it, Let's make him in our image. And and that image is going to require something. They're going to be male and female. They're going to be created in relationship. In Genesis chapter, well, what is the image of God? 1 John chapter 4 verse 8 says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Love is the only noun that's used to define God. You can say God is just But it doesn't say in the Bible that God is justice. However, it does say that God is love. Not just loving, but God is defined as love. Selfless, other-centered, giving, relational in nature. This is what makes up reality because it makes up God. Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 says, And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. So when God comes, he forms God and he forms man, sorry, in the dust. Genesis chapter 2 breaks it down that sixth day in a little bit more detail. And it says that he forms him in the dust. And when he, he has the hardware there, uh, there's no person yet. But then he breathes into him and it says, and he became a living being. He became a soul. 
But you know what? God said, that's not good enough. It just like the rest of, the, actually through the rest of creation, God's saying it's good. It's very good. It, it is good. But when man is alone, it's not good. Now, this isn't uh, to mean that if you aren't married, that you aren't able to experience the image of God. But this is to say that we are designed to be in relationship with other human beings. I love the way that uh, Professor Millard J. Erickson in his book on the Trinity said it like this. If reality is fundamentally physical, then the primary force binding it together is electromagnetic. If it's just about a physical universe, if that's all that reality is about, then, then it's about electromagnetic forces tying us together. If, however, reality is fundamentally social, then the most powerful constituting force is that which binds persons together, namely love. You see, there's a greater reality than, than chemistry and physics and, and how the world operates, and that is the operating principle of God himself. Who God is in essence, God is love. And so the reality is that reality itself is fundamentally social. Which, this is a fascinating concept to keep in mind as we think about life and we think about death. What really is life and what really is death? And we talked about the resurrection. We looked at this a little bit. That it said we saw that selfishness is death. They come part and parcel with each other. And we saw that love is life. First John's really clear that if you abide in love, you abide in God. And God is love. And love is life. Now, Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says that the wages of sin is death. Where does death come from? Death originates from our departure from the character of God, from the law of God. Our willingness to turn aside from from the path that he has given to us. And and God has told us, even from the very beginning, he told Adam and Eve, he said, hey, if you go and you pick of that fruit and you eat from the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil, you will surely die. So what was the very first lie that was told to Adam and Eve? Genesis chapter 3 and verse 4. That you will not surely die. you're you're not going to come to an end just because you participate. Sin doesn't inherently produce death. That was the argument of Satan. God is holding something back from you. He doesn't want what's best for you. God is selfish, and you should be selfish too because that will bring you to this higher level of existence. That's what you really need for your life. You will not surely die. But what did Jesus say? Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And he said that the wages of sin is death. He said in James chapter 1 that sin, when it is fully grown, it produces death. That sin results in death. So God is love. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is forgiving. But what happens if God says, okay, Adam and Eve, universe who's rebelled against me, let's just forget this all happened, and you all, you just come up with me, let's, let's come up to heaven, you join the angels who never rebelled, let's just go back and let's start over, and let's forget about the whole deal. What's going to happen before long if we haven't come to realize 
the malignity of sin. How incredibly terrible sin is. You see, the good news is such good news because the bad news is such incredibly bad news. Sin results in death and love results in life. God wants to give us life and the good news is that he has given it to us as a gift, but that's only good news to you if you recognize how bad the bad news is and you'll only turn away from sin if you finally see how incredibly good the good news is and how bad the bad news is. I hope that made any sense. That was <laughs> So Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. What does this look like? Revelation chapter 20 verse 6 makes it really clear, this whole idea that there are two different deaths that take place. Talking about the righteous, it says, Blessed is he who has part in the first resurrection over such The second death has no power. That's good news. That as we come to experience life in Christ, we don't need to worry about this death of the soul that Jesus talked about. There's good news in that there's a resurrection coming that's talked about in Revelation chapter 20. Jesus said it in John chapter 5 verse 28 actually that there's a resurrection for righteousness and a resurrection for condemnation. There's a resurrection of life And there's a resurrection for condemnation. There's two types of death that are revealed in the Bible. Now, what does all of this have to do with the three angels' messages? Isn't that what we're talking about? Where's Pastor Zach going today? Why is he talking about death and all these other things? Hang with me for just a second, and it'll hopefully come around. We've been looking at Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 and 10 for quite some time. Um, And we're going to continue just looking at chapter... Uh, 14 and verse 10 today. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, if he's participating in the character of the beast, if he's accepting the identity of selfishness as is revealed in the dragon, then he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. And we've been looking at this term wrath. We've been looking at how wrath uh, is represented as God giving the nations over, Israel over to the nations whose gods they're worshiping. Allowing the nations to come in and ransack them. Allowing these things to take place time and time again in his wrath, it says. But here we're going to look a little bit further at the next part of that, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. What is this cup? What is God's wrath and his indignation that's poured out full strength into this cup? What does this look like for a human being to experience? What is this talking about? Friends, this is talking about the second death. This is talking about the end of sin. And this is something that God does not want for you or any other human being on this planet. That is the good news. And we can know this because of what Jesus has done for us. And he has clearly given us uh, an understanding of what's taking place here. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 36. Jesus has been in the upper room. You remember in the upper room when the disciples are arguing? Jesus is the one who girds himself with a towel and goes and washes their feet to settle their arguments, settle their differences, and to help them see that love is the only way. Such a beautiful picture of how Jesus handled conflict. And then Jesus 
sings a hymn with them, and they head out, and on their way out, he talks with them. He talks with them about saying, hey, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back and receive you again in John chapter 14. Then in John chapter 15, they're walking past the vineyard, and he's telling them, hey, if you abide in me, and I abide in you, you're going to bear much fruit. And I'm telling you these things so that your joy may be made full. I mean, it is a happy evening, wouldn't you say? Wouldn't you have loved to be with Jesus that night? And, and it seems like everything is going great. And the disciples are headed off. They're, they're headed to the Garden of Gethsemane, which the Garden of Gethsemane, the word Gethsemane means olive press. It was a, a grove of olive trees. And as they're, they're headed there to the Garden of Gethsemane, Suddenly, something changes. They'd gone there plenty of times before, and Jesus often spent the night there in prayer. But notice what happens, verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be, what does it say? Sorrowful and deeply distressed. What's happening? I thought everything was great. I thought they were having this wonderful evening. And as Jesus is walking to the garden, suddenly he's sorrowful. He's deeply distressed. Verse 38 continues. Then he said to them, my, what does it say? My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Jesus says, my soul is dying. Dying due to what? Sorrow. He says, This sorrow is so deep, it's so big, that I am dying right here in the garden of Gethsemane. Stay here and watch with me. He keeps repeating that, to watch, to watch, to watch. He wanted for them to look and to see, because the whole world has got to see what took place in Jesus on that night. Because as we see that, we realize that the wages of sin really is a horrendous death, because there is only one person who has ever fully experienced this death. Verse 39, he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, verse 40, or, or verse 39 continues, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Suddenly, he's using this terminology that's not so familiar to us. He says, let this cup pass from me. He's not just talking about it. A literal cup. He's talking about the cup of human experience. This was commonly used in the the Bible. In fact, it was used in Psalm chapter 75. I was reading that in my Psalm of the Day this morning. And it talks about how the wicked will end up drinking the cup of God's wrath in the end. Father, I don't want to drink it. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. What's going on here? This is where we get this picture of what Revelation 14.10 is talking about. The cup of the wrath of his indignation. This that's mixed full strength with no mercy involved. This is what's going to take place in the end. We've got to understand it. And the only way to understand it is Jesus. That's, that's where we go to grasp what takes place. Because no other human being has experienced this except for Jesus. Notice what he had said back in verse 38. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. My soul is dying as I think about drinking this cup. 
Well, Isaiah chapter 53 is where we find the Old Testament most clearly unveiling to us, opening and pulling back the veil so that we can, we can grasp what is taking place in Jesus. What was it that was happening to Jesus? Isaiah 53 and verse 3 says, He is despised and rejected by men. And that's something to give you sorrow. Judas has just walked out on him. He's told the disciples, you're all going to reject me tonight. And they're like, nah, you don't know what you're talking about. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Elsewhere in the Bible, it says that he trod the winepress alone. Throughout his life, although Jesus was surrounded by people, he was so dreadfully alone on our sinful planet. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now notice what it goes on to say. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Whose grief did he have? Whose sorrow? Was it, was it his or was it ours? Ours. He's bearing it for us. Notice what verse 4 goes on to say. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now, sometimes I've looked at what's taking place in Gethsemane, and I've looked at it as, look, God is crushing his son, and if he crushes him, then he will feel good enough to come and save me. But notice what it's saying here. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We thought that that's what was happening. Is that what's happening? Well, let's read the very next verse. Continuing in the New King James Version, it says, but, meaning actually, this is what's happening. It's not that God is standing there crushing his son, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. What was taking place to Jesus was not a result of God arbitrarily imposing something on him, but it was a result of my sin, your sin, being placed upon Jesus. You see, the cross, Gethsemane, it's not about working a change in God. It's about working a change in your heart and my heart. God is good. He is loving. He is forgiving. He is gracious. But we cannot, we have not been led to the place where we are trustworthy to live in a universe of love forever because we have not come to grasp clearly enough what Jesus has done for us. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Verse 6 goes on to say, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was experiencing that condemnation, that guilt that you know all too well. When you've mistreated somebody, when when you've done something that you know is hurtful to yourself, to somebody else, to God, that burden that comes on you, that, that loathing that, that you feel towards yourself, unmixed with the sense of God's forgiveness, this is what is pressing down upon Jesus. For he was cut off from the land of the living. That's the idea of wrath and again and again in the Bible is that they're cut off, they're, they're, they're given over, they're, they're given to the, the consequences of what sin produces. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. It was my transgressions that were crushing Jesus. When you make, verse 10 goes on to say, now notice the, and we're skipping through the chapter here for sake of time, but notice verse 10 says, when you make his soul an offering for sin. Again and again in Isaiah 53, it's focusing on grief, sorrow, and sin afflicting Jesus' soul. 
It, it's dealing with, and the word for soul in the New Testament is psyche. It's, it's, it's a psychological, emotional trauma that Jesus is going through that, that is so much deeper and so much more intense than the physical suffering that, that he goes through. Verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul. Labor of what? His soul. It's his, his psyche that's going through this. It's, it's an emotional, psychological battle that is going on inside of Jesus because reality is fundamentally social. God is love and God is experiencing the breakup of that love in, in Christ. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Which death is Jesus experiencing? He is pouring out his soul unto death. Is he experiencing the death of the body or the death of the soul? He's experiencing the second death. He's experiencing the death, it's his body, I shouldn't say or, it's the, the death that is both the body and the soul. Now, uh, and he's, he's numbered with the transgressors, he's counted as a transgressor, he feels towards God all of the, the guilt and condemnation that, that separates us from being able to even see God's loving face anymore. Verse 12 says, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He's carrying our sin. And that's, that's hard for us to comprehend. It's hard for us to grasp because, let's be honest, God is so gracious that, that you in your life don't even really grasp a tiny fraction of what is entailed in your own sin. I don't grasp it. I don't want you to imagine for a second, what if I were able to walk over here and push a button? And when I push that button, instantly, to your consciousness, you are cognizant of every sin that you have ever committed in your entire life. Every time that you've hurt some, somebody, you've said something hurtful, you've done something uh, to harm yourself, you've done something in violation of God's law. Instantly, you feel all of that, and there's no sense of pardon, no sense of forgiveness, no sense of grace. What would that be like for you in that moment? Hell, is that what somebody said? You're exactly right. It would be mind-shattering. It would be more than we could possibly bear. And it's hard for us to grasp what that looks like. But multiply that by 7 billion people on this planet today. And multiply that throughout history by every single person who's ever lived. And you get a little picture of the weight of what was pressing down on Jesus. Helps me grasp just a little bit more the incredible weight of what Jesus was going through. The condemnation that he must have felt on a level that is so incredibly infinite. You know, I was reading um, in Psychology Today about the difference between emotional pain and physical pain. And uh, this guy by the name of Guy, a psychologist, has written about the five things that show the difference between emotional pain and physical pain. That really show that emotional pain is, on a, is, is far uh, more intense in our lives than actually our physical pain. One, does memories trigger emotional pain but not physical pain? I don't know about you, but 
in high school, let's say, for instance, I played basketball and I sprained my ankle and, and that hurts. Spraining an ankle is painful. But you know, when, when I get on the basketball court, I don't think about the pain. It doesn't come back to me. My ankle doesn't hurt when I'm playing basketball. When I see somebody else sprain their ankle, I don't feel it. But on the other hand, emotional pain, when I'm just reminded of something that somebody said, when I dwell upon something that happened to me, when I think about something that hurt or a loved one that I lost, suddenly it all comes back and the pain is just as real as it was to begin with. The second point, we use physical pain as distraction from emotional pain and not vice versa. We see this in today's culture. Um, This is a little bit foreign to the older generation, but in the younger generation, there's something called cutting. Have you ever heard of this before? It's where young people, they're going through it emotionally. And and one of the reasons that cutting can take place is they're trying to escape the pain. And this distracts them from the emotional pain. They they put cuts into their arms or wherever, escaping this emotional pain that that is, is too great in their lives. Number three, physical pain garners far more empathy from others than emotional pain. How often do people say, get over it. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. Well, I see that that person is hurting physically, but man, that person just has a chip on their shoulder. Man, they just need to get over it. Yeah, they feel they were mistreated, but they don't know what they're talking about. You know, the Bible says, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. It doesn't say judge them for how they're feeling. It says enter into their feelings and love them. Verse uh, number four, emotional pain echoes in ways physical pain does not. Now, this is pretty fascinating. I just want to reach, read to you his little uh, bullet point on this one. He said, if you got a call about your parent dying while you were having a romantic lobster meal with your partner on Valentine's Day, right? So you're Valentine's Day, you're having a romantic, you wouldn't be having lobster. Let's say you're having a, a eggplant parmesan without the cheese at, at Olive Garden, right? With your Valentine. It will probably be a few years before you can enjoy eggplant parmesan without cheese or Valentine's Day without becoming extremely sad. But if you broke your foot playing softball in an amateur league, you will likely be back on the field as soon as you're fully healed. Physical pain usually leaves few echoes. That's not always true, but in comparison to emotional pain, physical pain actually pales in comparison. Number five, emotional pain, but not physical pain, can damage our self-esteem and long-term mental health. It has long-ranging consequences. And you know, we tend to look at Jesus, and we tend to look at all that he went through with being whipped, with being spit upon, with having that crown of thorns pressing down on his head. And that, that can help us to grasp just a little bit the intensity of what he's going through. But what helps us even more is to realize that Isaiah 53 says, the sheep before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You know, I used to think that that was because Jesus exercised a lot of self-restraint, self-control. But now I'm beginning to realize he was going through a far deeper agony. In the garden, he expressed his agony. He cried out. Luke tells us that, we'll, we'll look at that in a second, that he was sweating great drops of blood. But on the cross... 
He's still going through emotional pain, but he's not crying out over the nails. He's asking for God, to, his father, to forgive them. He can barely feel the physical pain because of the emotional, psychological weight that's bearing down on him. The Desire of Ages talks about what Christ is going through there in the Garden of Gethsemane. I encourage you to pick up the Desire of Ages and read this chapter on the Garden of Gethsemane. It's, it's amazing, the picture that it gives us. is It, it describes what Jesus is going through as the Father separates his presence from him. You imagine what it's like for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who have always enjoyed this, this holy uh, communication, this, this friendship throughout eternity. And, and it was hard enough for the incarnation to happen and him to lose that omniscience of all those, those past memories and to lose his omnipresence of being there with the Father in his very presence. But how much more to actually be fully separated from his Father and from the Holy Spirit. The Desire of Ages then goes on to say this, page 68, 687. The human heart longs for sympathy and suffering. This longing Christ felt to the very depths of his being. There in the midst of his suffering, there in the garden, praying on his face, he just wants somebody to be there with him, to sympathize with him. That's what every human being is longing for, for some sympathy, for compassion, for somebody to be there with them. And that is portrayed clearly in the story. Do you remember what happened in the garden? Matthew chapter 26 and verse 40. Why does he do this time and time again? Most nights he would go and he would pray and the disciples would fall asleep and he would just go on praying. But this night, verse 40 says, then he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And you can tell by his response that he's, he's heartbroken over the fact that, that sleep is separating him from his disciples, that they're not able to comfort him. He's longing for some sort of support in the midst of his suffering. But the disciples are asleep. And then verse 42, it says, Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And then he comes back again. And what is he looking for? He's looking for some support. He's looking for somebody to be there for him in the midst of his pain and agony. And there was nobody there for Jesus. Nobody. You feel lonely today? I'm sorry. Please reach out to us and and help us to be there for you. But you've never experienced loneliness to the depth that Jesus has experienced it. As he was cut off from communication with his father, he has nothing left not even the human beings around him. And this is so crushing to his soul that he is going to die here. And we'll find out that heaven actually has to step in in order to stop him from dying on the spot. But you know, thinking about being alone, I was looking up some studies that have been done. You know, starting in the 1950s, it had to do with uh, what they thought that the Russians were doing and later on what they thought was happening in China with, with brainwashing POWs. They started doing studies, and it happened at McGill University, where they asked students, they said, we'll pay you $20 a day if you come and be a part of this experiment, and we're going to put you in a room, a dark room, and we're going to put goggles over your eyes, we're going to put your hands in tubes, and we're going to put gloves over your hands so you can't feel anything. You're going to lay there on the bed, we're going to put goggles over your eyes, we're going to put earphones on so you can hear absolutely nothing, and we're just going to see what happens to you with no sensory stimulation and complete isolation. And a lot of these people said, you know, no problem. I've got this research paper to be thinking about. I've got this dissertation to write, and I'm just going to spend the time thinking about all this stuff. 
But the stuff that they wrote about, how they began to go crazy, how they began to think about hallucinating, how they, and, and they were able to only last days in this type of situation. But we've had others who have done it. You've had people who have willingly gone, spelunkers who have gone into a cave to live in a cave to see how long they could live in total darkness, isolated with no uh, communication except for to their health team just to let them know that they're okay and that people can be monitoring them. Well, these two did it in France. And they went down and they were trying to break the world record for the longest time in isolation. As they went down into the cave, it was in the Alps in the, the winter, or at least by the time they got out, it was winter. They came out, and they thought that it was one of them, well, anyway, when they came out, they thought it was months earlier than when they actually came out because of how time had passed. In, or they thought it was yeah, months earlier. So sometimes when they were there in the darkness of that cave, they would sleep for 30 hours at a time. And then they'd wake up and thought that they just had a short nap. So the sleep cycles, oftentimes in solitary confinement or times like this, sometimes it becomes 48 hours that people will sleep for. But others who have been put into these studies, sometimes they sleep for, for 10 hours and they're awake for 25 hours, 10 hours, 25 hours, and they begin to hallucinate. They see snakes crawling around. This one person thought that they had been shot and they actually felt the pain in their arm. They begin talking craziness. And when they bring people out of these situations, they're no longer able to perform the same mental tasks at the same proficiency that they did before going into any type of solitary confinement. We weren't meant to be alone. Well, these two who were in those caves in the Alps, they both actually found a friend in there. Uh, They found rodents. (laughs) You see, this human heart longs for companionship, even if it's your dog. Or even if you're in a cave, you want that mouse to come close to you. And, and one of them, in order to get the mouse to become his friend, he, he had some jelly and he began spreading the jelly on the rock. And he was trying to get the mouse to come close to him. And then he took his bowl and tried to capture the mouse when it was getting the It didn't work out so well for the mouse. He was really sad that the mouse didn't make it through that. The other one, though, managed to make friends with a white mouse who came into her cave. And she said, that was my solace in the midst of the solitude. Humanity was not meant to be alone. You weren't meant to be alone. Jesus went through an aloneness that is beyond anything that we can possibly comprehend. And when he looked for sympathy, there was nobody who was there for him. The darkness just kept getting darker. And Jesus, as the darkness kept getting darker, had the choice. You and I, We don't always recognize the choices in our life, but for Jesus, it was fully his choice. Do I take another step into the darkness? Do I take the sin further? Do I fully accept this separation from the Father that feels eternal? Luke 22 tells us that he physically could not handle this. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And how do you think the angel strengthened him? I believe the angel stepped in and did what the disciples should have done, spoke words of encouragement, told them of the Father's love, told them about the hope that was set before him, about the people that were going to be saved through this, and somehow gave him enough encouragement because otherwise Jesus would have died in the Garden of Gethsemane. Literally, he would have died right there. That's how bad it was. But he had to go to the cross so that the world could see what took place, so that we could witness, so that there's this opportunity for the entire universe to be made safe from rebellion ever again as we recognize that sin does result in death, that sin does produce this incredibly horrendous 
consequence. And we turn away from sin as we behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 44 describes that agony. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly than his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And it's well documented that people die of a broken heart. Here Jesus is experiencing an emotional trauma that is beyond anything that any human being has ever endured. And friends, he drank the cup so that you can have his righteousness. He became sin so that you can become his righteousness. You can drink of his forgiving love. You can accept and trust that he is right about sin, that sin will hurt you, and you can turn away from this. You see, the Christian walk is not about confessing, oh yes, I believe that Jesus died for me, and that he took care of my sin, so I'm just going to keep on living in sin and just keep on going through the, the motions. It's about saying, man, he's right. Sin is absolutely horrendous, and he is incredibly good. I desperately need his righteousness in my life. And accepting that righteousness as a gift and choosing to turn from sin to turn to his goodness. Saying with Jesus, not my will, but the Father's will be done. Desire of Ages, page 690 says, three times Jesus uttered that prayer. Three times has humanity sunken, shrunk from the last crowning sacrifice. But now the history of the human race comes before the world's Redeemer. What strengthened him to be able to drink that cup was thinking about you. He sees the helplessness of man. He sees the power of sin. The woes of a doomed world rise before him. He beholds its impending fate and his decision is made. He sees where sin will lead you. He sees how it will crush you in the end. And as he saw that, he said, no. No, I can't let that happen. He will save man at any cost to himself. And this is a revelation above all revelations. That God is selfless. That when faced with your future and his future, he chose yours. And he always will choose yours. He will always put you first. He always has your best in mind. And so when you come to his law, you say, yeah, God wants what's best for me. And I'm going to walk in that way because that is the path of healing. So for us today, how do we live in light of the fact that Jesus bore our sin for us? John chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus was contemplating this moment of going to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says this to the Greeks who came to inquire about him. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much gain. You see, you and I aren't called to bear the sin of the world, but we are called to lay down our lives, to bear in sympathy the suffering of the world around us. Galatians says, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Thus live out the character of Christ. Enter into the the woes of the world around you. Enter into the suffering of the world around you. Enter into the emotional pain that is going on in the world around you. Sympathize with people. Unless you do that, you're going to be alone in the end. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. God's longing for us to give up our own life, to embrace his life, and to live in self-sacrificing love for our kids, 
for our, our neighbors to say, hey, I can set aside time to help him fix his car. I can, I can set aside some, some money for that person that I know is in need. I, I can sacrifice some of my own needs for somebody else. Until we grasp this character of God, we are headed towards drinking the cup of his wrath. But as we accept who Jesus is, as we keep looking, we keep seeing this beautiful picture of who Jesus is, it will change us from the inside out. It will transform us to be loving just as Jesus was loving. You know, there's nothing like being in connection with somebody. There's nothing like being together with somebody. You know, my girls, if they fall down or, and skin their knee, or if, if there's a, a disagreement between them, if there's something that they want that they don't get, if, if they're just feeling sad, I love how often they just look up to mommy, they look up to daddy, and they say, hold me, hold me. Here we are um, getting some pictures taken, and you can see that there's a little bit of sadness here. But it's amazing what holding does to a little child. It's amazing the joy that holding a child can bring to them. Friends, if you're feeling alone, let Jesus hold you. Accept the fact that that he was separated from the Father's love so that you, nothing can separate you from his love. Accept the fact that he forgives you and turn from your sin and turn to Jesus today. Let him hold you. And don't just stop there, but go to the world around you. Love the world around you. You see, sin creates disharmony in all of our relationships. It creates disharmony from, from our marriages to our our work environment, to the world around us. The reason that the world is fighting today is because of sin. Sin produces disharmony, discord, strife, and ultimately death. But self-sacrificing love, that will change the world forever. Let's keep going. Let's keep looking to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane because seeing that kind of love is compelling and it will change absolutely everything for us. Father, thank you. You so love the world that you gave your only begotten Son. Thank you that you destroyed the lies of the devil by manifesting yourself and by taking our sin, by showing us that sin results in death. Thank you. There is hope for each and every one of us that we can accept your righteousness because he who knew no sin was made sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Lord, fill us with your love. Lead us to love extravagantly this week. Lead us to live out that divine image that you're longing to recreate in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us to turn from sin, to turn to righteousness and to love lavishly. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.